From Boston Partners, welcome to Insights, in-depth conversations with our investment team on investing across geographies, sectors, and industries, beyond what you read in the headlines. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Boston Partners Insights. Thank you for joining today. I'm Paul Heathwood, your host. Uh, Joining me today is Andy Hatem. Andy is a fundamental research analyst who covers the healthcare sector for Boston Partners. Our subject today is healthcare investing, and it certainly seems like a a fitting way to end 2020, uh, a year shaped by a global pandemic. Uh, COVID-19, as we all know, it is safe to say that it has touched every person on the globe this year in one form or another, and healthcare has certainly been and will continue to be at the center of efforts, not only uh, on preventing the contraction of the disease, but also treating those who are afflicted with the virus and coming up with the solution through the development and distribution of vaccines. Uh, Today, we offer the perspective of a financial analyst and a fiduciary whose role is to analyze information in an uncertain environment and to actively manage portfolios with the job of making informed investment decisions that are in the best interests of our investors. So the questions and responses today are really coming from that perspective and with that in mind. Andy, welcome back. Uh, You were last with us about two years ago. Has anything happened in the healthcare sector since then? Well, uh, yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, Plenty has happened. Um, Thanks for having me again. I can't believe uh, it has been two years since our last call. So I will, uh, I'll, I'll let you start. Great. Well, we certainly have a lot to talk about, uh, both looking back over the year and, and looking ahead. So let's dive right in. Um, let's start with the, the pandemic. And can you share your thoughts on uh, where things stand now from, from your perspective as a financial analyst? Sure. Um, and, and again, uh, before we get going, I do want to echo something that Paul said. Um, the focus of this call is to discuss our investment strategies with clients. But uh, at the same time, before we start talking stocks, the human side of us want to acknowledge that so many people, so many of us have been affected or know people who have been affected by this pandemic that we're about to discuss. And I just wanted to say that our thoughts and prayers do go out to anybody on this call who has been affected in any way. So, uh, okay, uh, with, with that, uh, the question was, where do we currently stand? Well, as we stand, it's a pretty dark time, I'd have to say. Uh, run some numbers. There are 73 million confirmed positive cases worldwide. There are over 17 million in the U.S. alone. These are people that have been uh, confirmed as COVID positive. And that U.S. number is more than any other country and by far the most of any developed G7 country, for example. So if you look at cases per capita, that adjusts for population. The U.S. falls to ninth in the world, so a tiny bit better, but we're still behind many smaller countries. And we're still 40 to 60% higher than the next developed G7 countries, France and Italy. We're almost double that of the UK. We're almost three to four times that of Germany and Canada. And because many countries still aren't testing as many people as they'd like, most epidemiologists think the amount of people who have actually been infected at this point is many multiples of those reported numbers, possibly as much as 15 times. So next, if you look at the mortality rate, The U.S. has fared slightly better, but these are still very big numbers. Uh, The U.S. has had over 300,000 deaths attributed to COVID. That's over, uh, and and that's measured over a longer time period than a typical seasonal outbreak like the flu. 
but that number is many multiples, about five times of what can be attributed to flu in the most recent uh, worst years. And another way to look at it is we're approaching the amount of lives lost by the US in World War II. So when you adjust for population, the US data places it firmly in the middle of G7, the developed countries. We're a bit better than Italy and the UK, for example, but well behind others like Canada and Germany. And then finally, the economic impact, it's been pretty massive. So in the second quarter, gross domestic product or the uh, measure of uh, most common measure of economic output, it was down 32%. That's the worst quarter on, rec on record. It's worse than the Great Depression. And then in the third quarter, that poor second quarter performance was followed by a 38% jump. That's a quarter that's so good, we haven't even come close unless you go back to the 1870s, which 150 years ago. So it's very safe to say these are not normal times. Yeah, that's for sure. So as you as you think about it, you know, we're, we're nine months into this since the economy locked down in March and uh, both with the, the progression of the the virus and uh, in the economy, is this in line better or worse than you had initially expected or anticipated? Sure, okay. So I'd say to answer that question, for some perspective, there was a recent example of a coronavirus, uh, the SARS outbreak. This was back in 0203. SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory um, Syndrome. So this was back in 2002, That ended up impacting 8,000 people. They were mostly in Asia, um, so the fact that COVID's proliferated globally makes it much more impactful. And I think most people would have expected way back in the first quarter. And then in terms of infection rates, I'd say it's probably played out pretty much like the worst case scenario that was discussed at the time. Then if you compare mortality rate, fortunately, um, the mortality rate is much lower than some of the most dire predictions, which we saw early on. Um, some that called for as many as 2 million deaths in the U.S. from the virus. So fingers crossed, it looks like we should remain well below that dire projection. Andy, just a, an aside question. You mentioned that, um, that it's possible that the numbers have been underreported in terms of those reported cases versus, versus those that actually have it. Could that be a potential silver lining that more people have had it and didn't know so they may have some immunity? It could be could be one, uh, one thing if you look at models that try to project when a population gets to herd immunity, um, having a, a bigger starting point, which is people who have tested positive and then people who uh, likely have been exposed but were never tested, you can get to herd immunity faster if you start at a higher number. Okay, okay, great. Um, and then just on the uh, last on the US, you know, the US figures seem to be so much higher than in other countries. Do you attribute that to anything? Sure. Um, so to start, I'd say that's a hard question to answer because there are so many variables when you compare one country versus another. Uh, but what I would say is research that I've read points to a few, a few items. The US has higher comorbidities than most other countries. We have, a more, we have more densely populated living conditions. Um, and also we didn't have uniform testing or regulations early on. I think these are three big contributing factors to why the US numbers are where they are. Um, early on, many pointed to a, a country like South Korea as a model. And South Korea had recent experience with coronaviruses. They had SARS, we just mentioned, and another called MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, that hit South Korea back in 2015. And experiences with those viruses told them 
that rapid testing early on, contact tracing, isolation for people who've been affected, infected, sorry, and mass wearing, uh, all of those uh, practices could contain the virus from seeing widespread outbreaks, outbreaks. And while South Korea is currently fighting an uptick in COVID right now, if you look at their reported data to that of other countries, it does show um, that they've been successful so far in containing the virus. And then for comparison, uh, there was an article recently, it was published in a medical journal. They traced a late February business meeting for a local U.S. biotech company, uh, local to us. They concluded that virus transmission from this one business event ultimately ended up being responsible for over 300,000 positive cases across 29 U.S. states and in multiple countries. Uh, so that event occurred in late February. Uh, and that was a time period where uh, other countries had already experienced outbreaks. And I think people in the US were starting to realize that there was uh, an, a novel virus in our midst, but it also was well before the US had any real restrictions in place. Okay. So let's take it down to the day-to-day the -day as an analyst. Uh, you know, there's, this is a, a big complex topic uh, you know, how this is going to play itself out with a lot of unanswerable questions. How, what do you do? How do you stay focused? And what, do you, what is important to you as you're trying to analyze the markets and analyze individual companies and how they might be impacted by this and, and making decisions in this type of uh, environment? Sure. So um, ironically, or, or maybe interestingly, uh, what drives stocks has remained constant throughout this period. Um, so one thing that we track over time is the percent of stock movements that can be attributed to uh, earnings growth versus other factors. And about 70% of the stock moves in the healthcare industry this year can be explained by estimate revisions. That means earnings estimates going up, earnings estimates going down. Uh, and that number is in line to slightly ahead of recent years. So it would tell you that this period is, is not any outlier period. So what I spend my time doing is trying to figure out which good businesses have reasonable valuations and the best business momentum, and then I try to make sure we own them. And, and that process hasn't changed at all. Okay. As the, uh, as the news has come out since March and as the, the, the whole process of this is, has unfolded, uh, have you recommended any changes to the portfolio based on what you're learning? Any things uh, there? Sure. Um, yes is the answer. Um, to take a step back, I'd say 2020 has seen an entire economic cycle compressed into two quarters. It's, it's been a boom-bust period like on steroids. Um, so we try not to force our wishes on the portfolio. You know, Instead, I'd say what we try to do is take what the market's giving you. And this year's, again, been a, been a year like none other. Um, so to, take, to, to look back in healthcare, um, some interesting things. The most expensive stocks have actually been the best performing stocks. I'd say that's very counterintuitive. Um, and that's presented challenges for a firm like ours that pays close attention to valuation as, as one of the, one of the uh, things to, to follow. Um, that said, in the second quarter, the market gave us a great chance to invest in some very high quality businesses that had become reasonably valued because everything was selling off and we took advantage. Uh, so the fund that I manage and many of our funds have taken a barbell approach this year. Uh, we've been able to add to some very high quality, strong compounding stocks uh, where valuations come down. Uh, 
so that was mainly in the second quarter. And, and a lot of these names are in healthcare industries like the medical device industry or uh, the life sciences industry or contract research organizations. Those are companies that, that run clinical trials for the pharma industry um, and even some high quality hospitals. Um, and then I would also say the other part of the barbell is that we were able to add to names that we felt were unfairly punished. Um, these were names with potential for strong cyclical recovery. Uh, they could have been recent initial public offerings that people started dumping, or they could have uh, been stocks that had temporarily high financial leverage. Um, and some uh, industries and names that come to mind there um, are some stocks in the healthcare technology space uh, and even in the dental equipment space. At the same time throughout the year, we maintain big positions in many of the other diversified, high quality compounding businesses that, that we typically invest in. And these are in industries like the health insurance industry, again, the medical device industry and the pharmaceutical industry. So just to take a step back, what are we looking for? Say it again, we're looking for good businesses with good earnings momentum, trading at reasonable valuations. And there were plenty of, uh, plenty of opportunities in, uh, in 2020 to, to invest in names that meet those criteria. Okay, so you've been uh, been pretty active there. That's uh, that's good to hear. Um, no doubt. Let's shift to uh, a topic that's certainly on everybody's mind: uh, an update on the vaccines. Sure. Okay. Um, so by now we have one approved vaccine in the U.S. Uh, it's also approved in the U.K. and Canada. That drug was called BNT one sixty two. It was co-developed by Pfizer and BioNTech. And then tomorrow, which will be December 17th, uh, the FDA will review the second submitted vaccine. This one's from uh, Moderna, which is a local company here. And these two companies are on pace to distribute enough vaccine by year end. So uh, two weeks, two, two, two more weeks in the year. Um, they're on pace to distribute enough vaccine for 35 million people this year. And then they have contracts to vaccinate as many as 900 million more in 2021. And that's, that's across the globe. That's not just a US number. Um, and then the next companies to finish trials and submit results to the FDA are likely gonna be Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. Those are both hoping for data and submission early in 2021. And if they're approved, they aim to produce enough vaccine for another 2 billion people to be vaccinated across the globe in 2021. So if you add up those numbers, you know, again, if everything goes right, manufacturing uh, hits targets, there are no snags, uh, that would be enough to vaccinate over 50% of the world's adults by end of 2021. And, uh, and do you, uh, does your analysis indicate that the vaccines will be effective? Well, I'd say based on the trial data we've seen so far from Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca, it looks like these vaccines will be effective. Uh, the data that they've reported um, uh, range from 70 to 95% effectiveness with what looks like pretty normal vaccine side effects. So, uh, and again, getting to the manufacturing and distribution, they should be able to manufacture and distribute enough vaccine uh, that would enable the US and other developed countries to move back towards a more normal existence, uh, hopefully by mid 2021. Um, and then, you know, some of the questions, what we don't know enough about is what's the longer term efficacy uh, and, and are there more side effects that will develop? Um, but those answers are most likely only going to be known with more widespread usage over longer time periods. 
this may be a, a tough question to answer and to know. How long will it take to know if it's not working or if there's a problem? Will it be in the you know the two weeks between now and the end of the year? Or will typically take you know more months for things to play itself out before one knows. Well, I think what I would say is we probably have a good idea by now uh, because the the trials, these vaccine trials, were very big. So J and J, I think. Uh, I have the I, I don't have these numbers handy. I'm going from memory. J and J I think has sixty thousand people in their trial. Um, Pfizer and Moderna uh, were thirty to forty thousand people. So those are some big trials, and they're designed to be that sizable so that you uh, can get a sense if there are going to be any problems ahead of time. Okay, great. So let's talk about the companies developing the vaccines, and um, do you believe that? they will be able to earn high levels of profits? And do they make, does the fact that they're developing a vaccine make them a good investment? Sure. Um, okay, so I guess the way I'd answer that question, Pfizer's developed their vaccine with all internally generated R&D dollars. And uh, the reason they did that is they aim to profit from the vaccine post the pandemic. There are others like AstraZeneca, J&J, &J, they've taken some government funding money uh, Moderna took some as well. Um, and AstraZeneca and J&J &J have pledged to sell their vaccines at cost or with no profits throughout the pandemic. Um, and I'd say across the pharma space with many companies uh, taking government funding and pledging to sell vaccines at no profit, we, we haven't really looked at vaccine sales as leading to profits at these companies. And as such, we haven't really added to any pharmaceutical stocks based on the idea that they're growing earnings from vaccines. Um, and, and why do I say that? I think you have to be you have to be very careful that there are some real conflicts in trying to profit during the pandemic, especially when you've taken government funding. And the government, the governance side of our investing mindset uh, gives credit to companies that have uh, added to the greater good during the pandemic. And here's an example: health insurers had a second quarter this year where elective procedures almost ground to a halt. And instead of letting those lower medical costs drop to the bottom line, um, instead what they did is they gave back the excess profits to their provider base, the doctors, the hospitals that were, that were um, you know, seeing their business really stop and seeing their um, uh, revenues and, and profits really stop. So the health insurers gave back these excess profits to the provider base and to the membership. You know, these are, these are uh, individuals who might've been struggling with, you know, potential job losses or, or potential um, uh, job insecurity maybe is, is a better way to, to look at it. So in this instance, we'd much rather see companies do the right thing. Okay, great, makes a lot of sense. Let's, uh, let's get into a, a bit more on specific segments within healthcare. Uh, if you look at this year, you know, areas that have really done well in the life sciences and, med equipment, and medical equipment manufacturers have out for, outperformed for much of the year, while areas like managed care have only recently begun to outperform but still trail a good bit. Uh, what do you attribute this to? Sure, um, so I'd say overall the healthcare market it followed a few paths this year. So early on in the year when COVID was just getting started, you know, we're talking back in the first quarter, the market started falling and performance among healthcare stocks got very narrow. So pharmaceutical stocks and biotech and drug distributors, those were some of the very few stocks that, that outperformed 
the overall healthcare industry while all the other sectors lagged. And, and that's, that's atypical that you would have such a narrow market. I think what was happening back then, investors didn't know the extent of the impact of COVID, yet they were betting that the solution would come from the biopharma space. And so heavy uh, exchange traded flows, ETF flows or index funds went into the pharma funds. Um, when it went into pharma funds. And, and you know, I, I think that's what was driving stock performance at that point. And then as the year progressed, investors grew to learn more about the potential impact of the virus. Market breadth improved and more stocks started performing better. Um, so at that point, again, this is, this is probably middle of the year, stocks that would play a role in researching and manufacturing the vaccines and testing for the virus started to take off. Those include some life science stocks, companies like Danaher, Thermo Fisher, Catalent, um, and, and other stocks took off that would benefit from testing um, for the virus, like Abbott Labs or LabCorp or Quest or Kyogen, just to name a few. Then as you look to say medical device companies, uh, procedures troughed in April. Some companies were seeing elective procedures as bad as only 10% of normal levels. And that was because um, hospitals were really trying to make sure that their capacity was full for, for, or their capacity was available for potential COVID patients um, and, and elective procedures just ground to a halt. So again, back in April, elective procedures were as bad as only 10% of normal levels. And then pretty quickly the recovery happened and it, it happened sharply. Um, as positive case counts really slowed and later in the second quarter and into the third quarter, hospitals were open again for elective procedures and many procedures recovered to like 95% of normal in the third quarter. So uh, that's a big move from 10% to 95% of normal. Um, and these trends that I just discussed, they carried biopharma stocks, they carried testing stocks, they carried medical device stocks throughout the year. Um, and then the other question you asked was about managed care. Uh, these stocks, I would say, for most of the year were held back by nervousness over the November elections, uh, the president and, um, you know, Senate, House elections, and the proposals such as Medicare for All were really what was weighing on these stocks. They really worried investors that the business model would change drastically. And then post-November, what we ended up getting was a White House win by Vice President Biden, um, and with what looks like either a mixed or slightly Republican-led Senate. So I think at that point, investors felt like the checks and balances in our system would allow only the most popular bipartisan legislation to pass. And that took the most dramatic proposals like Medicare for All off of their list of worries. So um, in this case, the absence of a real negative outcome is what ended up helping managed care stocks to rally later in the year. Okay, uh, let's let's talk about the election for a few for a few moments. Um, you know, the outcome is, I guess, still somewhat up in the air, but uh, we're pretty close to what we know what it's going to be. Uh, how does this impact the healthcare segment in your analysis? Sure, I'd say it means different things for different industries. Some some industries, business is just going to be business as usual. Um, so the main segments that are impacted by uh, the election are, I'd say, the, the biopharma space and the healthcare services space. Overall, you know, as I mentioned before, I think the industry, healthcare industry as a whole, averted the worst case scenario, which is a Medicare for all plan that, that we had discussed. Um, and, and just to go into that a little more, 
that's a plan that would have caused major disruption. It would have eliminated employer-sponsored coverage uh, for almost 160 million Americans. And the majority of these are people who've said in surveys that they're happy with coverage. So a major disruption that most people didn't want was avoided here, or at least discussion or, or potential passage of a major disruption that most people didn't want was avoided. Um, what we might actually get are smaller items. So um, Biopharma has executive orders that were recently passed by President Trump that President-elect Biden might need to address. Um, although these are items like rebate elimination, which has already been scored by the Congressional Budget Office to cost $177 billion and raise premiums about 20% for Medicare Part D plans for seniors. So um, that's probably something that's going to get a lot of pushback if it's ever attempted to be pushed through. Um, and then uh, there's another uh, executive order for a most favored nation's reference pricing for hospital uh, infused drugs that are facing biosimilars. I know that's a mouthful, um, but that is a policy that if it were enacted, um, and it's not a given that it will be, but if it were enacted, it should still have pretty limited financial impact on the pharmaceutical industry. So you, do you expect radical changes as a result of the new administration or just modest tweaks and updates? Tweaks, definitely. Um, it seems that the strengthening and expanding access uh, to, to health coverage under the Affordable Care Act is, is the administration's top priority in healthcare. Okay, great. Let's, let's talk about opportunities and, and, and looking forward. Where do you see the, the most attractively valued area in healthcare today? Sure. So I wouldn't say that there's one area only that stands out. What I would say is there are many attractively valued areas of healthcare that, that I think are worth uh, worthy of investment. So as, as you know, you're asking what, what I try to do, I try to run a diversified portfolio across the entire sector and I see good ideas in each sector. So starting with the largest companies, the biopharma industry, I think they deserve tremendous credit in my view. So what they've just done, they just took a virus we knew very little about nine to 12 months ago. Uh, they spent billions of dollars to test and manufacture novel vaccines. Um, and you know we're now at a point that if Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, J&J, if they all get their vaccines approved, they could be on pace to manufacture enough vaccine to vaccinate up to 3 billion people by the end of 2021. So if you think about that, that is a remarkable accomplishment. Um, and then, you know, getting to the individual stocks, there are a lot of biopharmaceutical companies that are well-run. They've allocated capital well, they, play, they pay strong dividends, they're attractively valued, and they have reasonable growth rates. So as a firm, we own plenty of pharmaceutical stocks based in the US, as well as other regions like the UK, Switzerland, France, um, and even Belgium. And I remain very comfortable with those positions. Next, you move on to uh, medical device stocks. They tend to trade a little more on the expensive side compared to some other healthcare uh, industries, uh, but they have decent, fundamental, decent fundamentals and faster growth profiles. And we own a lot of them as well. And the thing that we try to do is we try to be careful with our entry point. So we're, we're buying at a reasonable valuation. As you keep moving on, there are plenty of service stocks that have a great combination of business momentum, strong fundamentals with good balance sheets, good capital allocation, uh, and attractive valuations. And we're heavily invested in managed care, for example, uh, pharmacies, pharmaceutical research organizations. Again, those are, those are 
contract research organizations that I mentioned before, um, and even hospitals to name a few. And then finally, you know, the question will probably come up, hey, are there names in the supply chain that you think should benefit from vaccinations? And, and the answer is, is yes, but I wouldn't say that vaccine distribution is a, is a thesis moving event for us. So we do own, um, again, pharmacies, we own drug distributors, uh, and the firm as a whole also owns some non-healthcare names that will benefit from vaccine distribution, like in the transport and logistics space. Uh, where, you know, we've already seen lots of press coverage of trucks being loaded and unloaded with vaccines. Uh, but the one thing that I would say is that for all of these businesses, vaccine distribution is just another part of normal business for these firms. So they're not thesis changing events. They're not the main reason why we're invested in these companies. Um, and then I guess just to wrap up, I'd say, I'd say we feel very comfortable with the positions we hold in healthcare and we, we feel confident they can generate above average returns in 2021 and beyond. Great, sounds like a lot of, a lot of interesting opportunity there. Uh, let's finish our discussion today with one final question. Um, what does healthcare look like in a post-pandemic world and uh, where do you see some of the winners and potential losers? Sure, so what I'd say, same as always, healthcare costs as a whole, uh, they've grown two to three times economic output or gross domestic product for decades. And while that growth rate has slowed the past few years, say the past three to four years, healthcare is uh, still seen making up about 18% of uh, GDP in 2020 or 18% of the US economy. Um, and that's still ticking up a little bit. It's up a little bit over the last couple of years. So slowing the pace of health spending remains the critical work of many of the companies we're investing in. And uh, you know, you'll hear over and over again, companies talk about trying to have better outcomes for, um, better outcomes for their patients at, um, at lower costs. So um, better health, lower cost. Um, so slowing the pace of health spending that's the critical work of many of the companies we're invested in. And I think we're getting close to a point where costs can grow in line and then hopefully below US gross domestic products. So that would mean healthcare will, will actually start losing share of the US's spending, which said differently means people will be less of, their, of, of a dollar in their paycheck on, paycheck on healthcare. Um, the pandemic, it's one piece of this cost structure. And if anything, it's going to accelerate change with the rapid adoption of things like telehealth, for example. So that's one thing we can point to. Uh, telehealth's gone from a low single digit uh, percent of primary care visits to as high as 30% at some points throughout 2020. Uh, and this technology was really proven out during the pandemic. It, it was called called to action and it was given its chance. And, and I think the industry and the technology has really proven itself. And so what, what I think that means is by proving itself, this, this technology um, is going to retain a larger share of visits um, than, than it had pre-pandemic. And then you say, okay, what are the winning companies? What are, what are winning companies doing? I would say they're continued Winning companies will continue to be companies that can innovate, offer products and services that drive better outcomes at lower costs. You know, you're gonna hear people say that over and over. Um, better outcomes at lower costs, greater patient satisfaction, 
And then when it comes to allocating capital, allocate capital in smart ways, buying good companies or giving capital back to shareholders. And then you say, okay, so what's a loser look like? And I would say a loser will continue to do none of those things. So the pandemic itself, it probably changes the exact details of some different businesses, but I'd say the recipe for success looks like it shouldn't change at all. Overall, again, to reiterate, I'd say, I think healthcare as an industry will remain dynamic. There are a lot of disruptive and innovative technologies and there are a lot of innovative business models that are emerging. And I would say our focus on good businesses with strong business momentum and, and reasonable valuations um, should continue to help us identify and enable us to keep investing in winning stocks. Excellent. Uh, well, Andy, thank you. Let me ask you one last question before we wrap up. And, uh, you know, after, you know, talking about 2020 and a challenging year and, you know, opportunities and difficulties created, are you hopeful for next year, uh, both for healthcare and the markets? How are you, how are you feeling as we look into next year? Absolutely. I feel like we're, we're emerging from a dark place, but, but I think life could be very different six to 12 months from now. Yeah, I, I very out, much look forward to that. It's kind of astounding that we uh, that you actually have a vaccine where nine months ago people weren't even working on it, <laughs> and uh, that is uh, is quite an accomplishment, and hopefully will uh, will lead to a very good 2021 for everybody. Uh, well, Andy, thank you again for uh, for joining us. Thank you everybody on the line uh, for dialing in, and uh, we look forward to speaking with you in the new year. Have a great holiday, a safe holiday, and thank you again. All the best. Sounds good. Thanks, Paul.